At the State of the Union, congressional Democrats cheer for saving prematurely born babies who are wanted by their parents while scowling at the president's call to ban the killing of fully viable, unwanted third trimester babies. Then appearing on The View, Pete Buttigieg defends nine-month abortions and infanticide. Again, 162 years after Lincoln's speech, we are again a house divided on the question of human equality and human rights. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Welcome to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. So, hey, listen, if you're tuning into the show for the first time or the second time and you haven't given us a rating and review yet, please do. That really helps us reach more people. And because I speak eight to ten times a month, lots of nasty people who hate me go and troll my podcast and leave us nasty reviews so that we reach less people. So do that for us and help us expand the reach and impact of this show. So on June 16th, 1858, Abraham Lincoln gave his famous a house divided speech, one of the most popular political speeches in American history. And it was in Springfield, Illinois, at the Republican State Convention, where Lincoln was selected as a Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate seat against Stephen Douglas, the uh, sort of personally anti-slavery racist politician. And he said some of these infamous words, or rather timeless words, that ironically, tragically, echo through history to our time today and are as just applicable in 2020 to the question of human rights as they were to the question of human rights in the 1800s. So he says, we are now far into the fifth year since a policy was initiated with the avowed object and confident promise of putting an end to slavery agitation. Under the operation of that policy, that agitation has not only not ceased, but has constantly augmented. In my opinion, it will not cease until a crisis shall have been reached and passed. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. That's some moral clarity, isn't it? Observing that this division on the question of human equality and basic human rights for all human beings regardless of their skin color had nothing to do with partisan politics, had nothing merely to do with personal opinion or religious affiliation. It was something that they could not agree to disagree on. So much so that it led Lincoln to say, a crisis will have to be reached. We are divided against ourselves, and if this continues, we cannot stand. It cannot endure. This system of government cannot continue permanently half slave and half free. As Churchill said, there are great forces on the move, and they spell duty for the individual. And the immorality and the evil of slavery spell duty to Lincoln and to so many others of the abolitionist movement who refused to be co-opted into silence. Well, four and a half years later, on December 1st, 1862, as president... Lincoln delivered his State of the Union address to a very divided house being ripped in two on the question of slavery. So I want to read to you a short segment from the beginning of his State of the Union speech 
and then the end of his State of the Union speech and make some comparisons and contrast to our time today, given President Trump's recent State of the Union speech to a very divided house himself. So Lincoln begins his 1862 State of the Union speech by saying, one section of our country believes slavery is right and ought to be extended, while the other believes it is wrong and ought not to be extended. This is the only substantial dispute. Yes, there were other issues that mattered, as there are today. But the fact that the chasm between lawmakers, politicians, and Americans was a chasm over the very question of human dignity, equal treatment, and personhood led it to be the only substantial dispute, one that demands our attention, our time, and our care. And then he ends the State of the Union speech by saying, the fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. We say we are for the Union. The world will not forget that we say this. We know how to save the union. The world knows we do know how to save it. We, even we here, hold the power and bear the responsibility. In giving freedom to the slave, we assure freedom to the free. Honorable alike in what we give and what we preserve. We shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of earth. Other means may succeed. This could not fail. The way is plain, peaceful, generous, just. A way which, if followed, the world will forever applaud and God must forever bless. And that happened. Amen. We made the right decision. We self-corrected. We included every human being in the rights and precepts that were guaranteed to all human beings in our founding documents. But through racism and horrific policies and individuals, those were denied to a certain class of human beings. But we self-corrected and we appropriately applied those rights to our African-American brothers and sisters. And the world applauded and God blessed that endeavor and that successful granting and enshrining of human rights. And yet we face the same struggle today. We face the same division today amongst our house, amongst our Senate, amongst our Congress, and amongst American citizens. So we're going to get to how this relates to Trump's State of the Union um, last week. And the fact that we may be more divided today than we were then. But first, if you like the show and want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of the pro-life movement and these abortion wars between the forces of darkness and light, between those who celebrate abortion as reproductive health care and those who seek to grant human rights to unborn humans, then head on over to patreon.com slash unaborted and become a patron of the show. If you have found this content and commentary valuable and you're sharing it with those in your life because you want them to be educated and equipped to defend life, then become a patron of the show and help us increase the production value of the show, the number of episodes that we do, the guests that we bring on to be able to reach more people like you, more young people who are the posterity of the nation and the future electorate of those who will determine whether the unborn child is granted rights of personhood. Greg Cunningham once said that there are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. Well, part of the show is helping save more babies and pour into the next generation to create those who will step up to the plate to bat for unborn children. So please consider becoming a patron of the show, and you can do that at patreon.com slash unaborted, and we'll be right back with a whole lot more. 
Welcome back to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. So as Lincoln's words echo through eternity to our time today, that in giving freedom to the slave, we assure freedom to the free. We see the same struggle in America on the question of human rights for the unborn, who differs from us in the same ways that we differ from one another, but is certainly a member of the human race. And President Trump, at his State of the Union, as well as at his comments at the March for Life made very clear that this is his intent, this is his commitment, and this is his standing with the pro-life movement, seeking to do the same thing for unborn children that Lincoln and abolitionists did for African Americans, which is what? In granting freedom to those being victimized by evil, not only do we grant them human rights and protection, but we assure that freedom and protections to all human beings, meaning that the only way to ensure human rights for everyone, is to grant human value to all humans, regardless of how they differ from one another. So when you protect the right to life, value, and dignity of a class of human beings currently being victimized, you also assure that same freedom and right to life and protection to all human beings because we're all members of the same human race. And these types of ideas now are being discussed, argued over, and fought over in our time today, of course, for 47 years since the legalization of abortion. But the division of the House on the question of human rights in 2020 is more stark and the chasm more wide than, I believe, arguably, than any other time in American history. And I'm going to give you reasons as to why I believe we're more divided now than in the last 47 years. And so on Tuesday, February 4th, President Trump gives his State of the Union address, his fourth one in 2020, and uh, hopefully uh, uh, one of uh, four more <laughs> if he's reelected. And he gave his State of the Union address to a very divided house as well. On Tuesday, February 4th, he was still in the process of being impeached. He was acquitted the following morning on Wednesday, but he gave the State of the Union address to the Congress, half of which is filled with Democrats who are currently in the process of impeaching him. Well, but that's sort of beside the point from the question of abortion, but a very divided house. But we also know that this was arguably the most divided house over the question of human rights since Lincoln because we have proof in the pudding now on the radicalization of the pro-abortion Democrats in a way that we didn't in his 2019 State of the Union. So in his 2019 State of the Union, we had not yet seen Senate Democrats greenlight infanticide and refuse to vote on the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, which simply said that babies born alive during failed abortion procedures have to be immediately transferred to a hospital given the same level of medical attention and care as any other baby born under normal circumstances. And if the staff at an abortion clinic failed to report the fact that a baby was born alive during a botched abortion, they'll have legal repercussions. And then if the abortionist murders the baby born alive during the failed abortion, he'll be charged with first degree murder. All very reasonable. And yet in February of 2019, weeks after the 2019 State of the Union, Democrats uh, filibustered the bill, blocked a vote on the bill, and as of the end of 2019, he had blocked a vote on it 90 times, greenlighting infanticide and refusing to protect unborn children who survive abortions from vicious abortionists. So we had never seen this type of radicalization before 
this type of division on the question of human rights, even, even as it's applied to infants. Because in 2002, under the Bush administration with the Born Alive Infant Protection Act, that received unanimous bipartisan support. The Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act in 2019 was basically the same bill, but with more protections put in place to make it more difficult for these infants to be killed by vicious abortionists when the abortionists failed to kill them in the womb. So yes, this arguably may be the most divided house over human rights since Lincoln. In the typical way that State of the Union addresses are done, the president highlights guests in the audience and uses their great stories of American success and victory to highlight the beauty of the American people and how their current administration is prospering and allowing these people to succeed. And so one of the many guests that President Trump highlighted was Robin Schneider and her daughter, Ellie. Ellie, who was born at 21 weeks and six days, being the second youngest child born and to have survived in America ever the only other baby being born at 21 weeks and four days, two days earlier. According to Live Action News, Ellie was born at St. Luke's Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri. She's now two, and they report that St. Luke's was the first hospital in the area to initiate a program designed to treat very premature babies born before 24 weeks of pregnancy. It's incredible. According to KSBH Kansas City, nationally, babies born prior to the 24-week mark have a 6% survival rate. But at St. Luke's, they have a 50% survival rate. It's clear that medical intervention has made a huge difference. Incredible. So at this hospital, because of the program designated to treat very premature babies, they have increased the survival rate of babies born before 24 weeks by 44%. That's incredible. Now, this whole idea of viability, your ability to survive outside the womb, right, is a totally Barber, barbaristic standard for human rights. The, the barbarism of viability as a standard for human rights ends up leading to, the, to neglecting babies who, according to the subjective knowledge of hospital staff, were born too early to warrant medical intervention because there actually isn't an objective standard for viability right now nationally or in the courts, because it keeps changing, because medical technology and scientific advancements enable us to save prematurely born babies at earlier and earlier stages. And what's viability mean? It means the ability to survive outside the womb. Well, this medical technology is letting us save babies and keep them to survive outside the womb at earlier and earlier stages of birth. And there are horror stories of families begging hospital staff to try and save their prematurely born baby while the hospital stands there claiming to fulfill their Hippocratic oath while saying the baby's not viable because my standard that I was told 12 years ago in medical school tells me that this baby is not yet at the viability stage of development to warrant my professional intervention to save their life. Just absolutely disgusting. In fact, here's a LifeSite News article from May of 2018. The hospital staff at Riverside Methodist Hospital in Columbus refused to provide care or attempt to save these twin baby boys born by their mother, Amanda, at 22 weeks and five days. That's about a full week after baby Ellie was born, who was saved and recognized at Trump's State of the Union speech. So the, the barbarism of viability as a standard for human rights is absolutely disgusting and your heart just breaks and uh, infuriated towards these staff at these hospitals who, because they're applying their subjective standard of viability, don't even try to save babies while the mother's crying out for them to try to save their baby. 
I mean, just absolutely heinous acts against humanity and should be charged to the full extent of the law. So Trump recognizes and celebrates Robin and her now two-year-old Ellie as a brave fighter. And then he calls on Congress to provide $50 million towards neonatal research so that babies born at Ellie's age and younger can be saved to continue moving back the point of viability earlier and earlier and save more lives. So listen to what he said. In 2017, doctors at St. Luke's Hospital in Kansas City delivered one of the earliest premature babies ever to survive. Born at just 21 weeks and six days and weighing less than a pound, Ellie Schneider was a born fighter. Through the skill of her doctors and the prayers of her parents, little Ellie kept on winning the battle of life. Today, Ellie is a strong, healthy two-year-old girl sitting with her amazing mother, Robin. In the gallery, Ellie and Robin, we are glad to have you with us tonight. Ellie reminds us that every child is a miracle of life. And thanks to modern medical wonders, 50% of very premature babies delivered at the hospital where Ellie was born now survive. It's an incredible thing. Thank you very much. Our goal should be to ensure that every baby has the best chance to thrive and grow just like Ellie. That is why I'm asking Congress to provide an additional $50 million to fund neonatal research for America's youngest patients. So you'll notice if you watch this show, and if you don't, I'll tell you what happened. After he calls for an additional $50 million to be provided for neonatal research to save more babies like Ellie and younger, it shows nearly the entire Congress standing on their feet and clapping. In fact, the majority of the Democrats, right, because they're split <laughs> on each side of the room, stand up and clap. Even the majority of the Congress women dressed in all white because they are the feminist suffragettes. They're the they're the the feminist warriors reincarnated in 2020 to fight for the dismemberment of women in the womb. Nothing spells feminism like destroying women at their earliest and most vulnerable stages of development. Even those ageists stand up and celebrate Trump's call for providing resources and funding to save more babies like Ellie. It's unbelievable. It's ironic, right? Because they all support abortion through all nine months of pregnancy, and they refuse to pass the Abortion Survivors Protection Act, at least the senators. Only three Democratic senators in February of last year voted to protect infants who were born alive from vicious abortionists. Now, they had hardly stood up for anything else. Trump said all night, if you watch the State of the Union, they refused to stand up for hardly anything, even the record low unemployment rates of racial minorities that the Democratic Party claims to care about, which is just hilarious. But they stood up for this. Incredible. So Trump then makes the logical connection that's blatantly and painfully obvious to everyone 
between protecting 22-week-old babies or 21-week and six-day baby Ellie's and protecting 36-week-old babies in the womb. Here he is. That is why I'm also calling upon members of Congress here tonight to pass legislation finally banning the late-term abortion of babies. Whether we are Republican, Democrat, or Independent, surely we must all agree that every human life is a sacred gift from God. Yeah, if only. If only we could agree on that, despite whether you're a Republican, Democrat, or Independent. Of course, that's the absolute logical position. That's the most logical observation of common sense morality would be to say, regardless of your political partisanship, we must surely agree that all babies are valuable and worthy of protection. But the reality is, is that that's not true at all. Again, this is why you should watch Unaborted. You'll notice in the final clip after he calls for the illegalization, the banning of late-term abortion of babies, I didn't see a single Republican sitting down. And I only saw four or five congressional Democrats standing up because there are some pro-life Democrats who have sort of left the ranks of their party or they are pro-choice, but they have a semi-functioning of moral compass to say, ooh, third trimester abortions are way too grisly for me, bro. But then you see the final clip and they're all everyone else is sitting down. Of course, all the fake feminist suffragettes in their white uniforms are all sitting down, as is nearly everyone else. As Maya Angelou once said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. Freaking believe them. There, there's no way to get around this. There's no explaining a way of this. There's no saying, oh, well, they're just afraid that this is a Republican strategy to make all abortions illegal. Because if you make third trimester abortions illegal, then even me as an ageist partisan Democratic hack would have to admit that the only logically consistent position would be to maintain that it would also be wrong to kill second trimester babies because we all know it's the same human. Now, perhaps they are afraid of that Republican strategy that would lead to the logical, consistent position and acknowledgement that if it's wrong to kill third trimester babies, it's wrong to kill second and first trimester babies. But even if that's their reasoning for not supporting legislation against late-term abortion of babies, because maybe they don't feel great about it, but they want to protect earlier abortions, so they don't want any type of ideology that would lead to a consistent position, which would be the rejecting of all abortions. Even if that's what they're thinking, they're still total moral degenerates because they're willing to walk over the beaten and bloodied bodies of babies in order to maintain political purity in the eyes of the abortion industry that they want 100% approval ratings from from NARAL and Planned Parenthood as their pockets are lined with the blood money of dismembered babies that are fed to them in order to hold the secular orthodox position by abortion ideologues and Molex serviles. So even if you grant them the benefit of the doubt that maybe they don't like third trimester abortions, but they don't want to put their support against third trimester abortions because it might lead to a consistent ideology that would mean you'd have to oppose all abortions. That's still a disgusting thing to do. And then the worst case scenario would be that none of them care about the dismemberment of third trimester babies between seven and nine months old in the womb because it's reproductive health care to rip the limbs off of something that's part of your body which would mean that 
the mother should be dead because abortion always kills something. Oh, wait, it's a different body. And in the name of feminism and women's rights, you're willing to slaughter and give the death penalty to half a million babies every year in America. Okay, so there's some moral clarity for you. But when someone shows you who they are, believe them. These people are showing their cards and almost every single congressional Democrat refuses to stand or clap. So the brilliance of what President Trump did was he got them to acknowledge that a 21-week, six-day baby Ellie was valuable, though we actually it doesn't pan to the Democrats when the room is clapping for Robin and her daughter Ellie. You just hear the clapping. I assume some of them stood because when he called for $50 million for ne neonatal research funding to save babies at the same stage of development as Ellie, almost all the congressional Democrats stood up. So he gets them to admit that babies at this stage of development are valuable if they're wanted, if they're wanted by their parents. And they were willing to stand up. I mean, we're talking far left, crazy abortion ideologues in the Democratic Party amongst congressional Democrats said, absolutely, save these babies because their parents want them. So Trump is asking them to ban the slaughter of babies fully three months older than baby Ellie, fully three months older at the end of their development uh, prenatally in the womb. And they're not willing to do that. By the way, here are two pictures of 22-week-old babies right here. A picture of baby Ellie, whose life Democrats celebrate, next to a picture of what congressional Democrats believe that Robin should have had the right to do to baby Ellie if she didn't want her, if she was unwanted. These are both 22-week-old babies. One is Ellie in the hospital when she was born in Kansas City, Missouri, and one is another 22-week-old baby who was slaughtered, butchered, and bloodied by a vicious abortionist because her parents didn't want her. These babies are the same age. So what do congressional Democrats believe about human beings and human value? They believe it's based entirely on wantedness. That's the only observation that you could come away from in observing this absolute moral train wreck of political leadership. I... I don't, I don't know what to say short of starting to cuss right now. I, literally, a 21-week, six-day baby. Yay, more funding to save those babies. So valuable. I'm so glad the baby is here today with her mom. Family is beautiful. But if the mother didn't want baby Ellie, then she should have been able to pay a physician hitman to decapitate, dismember, and rip the limbs off of that same baby. How in the world does it make sense to suggest that a human being's value and actual right to not be killed by others is based purely on the mental state of your biological parents and how they view you? Some firing of brain cells in your parents' brain in how they feel about whether they want you in their womb or not means that that has objectively changed your actual value in the womb and right to not be killed. What absolute lunacy. Now, you, one might say, well, it's different than babies in the womb. Democrats don't support killing babies outside the womb. Oh, they don't. Is that why only three Democratic senators crossed the aisle to vote with Republicans for the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protecting, Protection Act, protecting infants outside the womb after they survived abortions? So it's not about location. It's literally just about wantedness. They 
only applaud for the president's call for research funding to save the lives of America's youngest patients because those parents wanted those babies. But if you're a 36-week or nine-month unborn baby whose parents don't want you, then you can be killed, slaughtered, and they want to fund it with your tax dollars and call it feminism and reproductive health care. But it's the same baby at the same level of development or significantly more developed. And that child's absolute objective fundamental worth and right to life changes based off of the mental state of their parents and whether they want you or not. This is a house divided over the question of human rights. This is what congressional Democrats, the, at least the supermajority, believe about babies in the womb. And this leads us to Pete Buttigieg, who has become one of the most frequent defenders of dismembering babies through point of birth, one of the most popular public defenders of Democratic presidential candidates running for president for abortion through the day of birth. But before we get to that, I have a exciting announcement for you guys. I've teamed up with my new friend, Sarah Vienna, for a pro-life church tour entitled I'm Alive. Sarah is an international speaker and singer who works in Romania and the States defending the cause of the needy from unborn to infants to elderly. And our I'm Alive church tour is named after her pro-life song, I'm Alive. This tour is to capture both the beauty and truth of the pro-life position. And we want to speak to the heart and the head of those in your church to win the hearts of your church for life while equipping them to defend life. Based on biblical truths, this tour can help your church create a culture of life that fights to love our unborn neighbors and their mothers and fathers. Happening this summer 2020, this tour will fill up fast. So to bring I'm Alive to your church, email us at imalivetour at gmail.com. That's I'm Alive, no apostrophe, I'm Alive Tour at gmail.com for questions and bookings. So we'll get to a whole lot more in just one second and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Unaborted. So this blatant disregard for human life in the womb through all nine months of pregnancy and, of course, the inability to even condemn infanticide leads us to Pete Buttigieg, who's become one of the most frequent and popular defenders of dismembering babies through the point of birth. And, of course, he gets a lot of attention because he's a gay mayor from a fairly conservative state uh, or with a lot of conservatives, rather, and he is running for president. So he is become very popular for his extremely controversial statements in his defense of abortion. And he repeats some of the overused tropes from the abortion ideologues over the last uh, nearly half century to defend abortion, but he adds in some of his own too. And as a fairly efficient manipulator of the language in his own right, he attempts, like all of his other Democratic political colleagues, to describe abortion as as not just something other than the killing of a baby in the womb, but as this actual uh, women's right issue, reproductive health care issue, or even religious issue, depending on where you draw the line and come down. So we put together a short mashup of Buttigieg's biggest baby-hating comments, um, and I want you to observe how he has mastered his euphemistic abortion speech with robotic precision over the last year since he announced his candidacy for president. The best that I can offer, and it may win your vote, and if not, I understand. The best I can offer is that if we can't agree on where to draw the line, the next best thing we can do is agree on who should draw the line. And in my view, it's the woman who's faced with that decision in her own life. The kind of cosmic question of how life begins. Most Americans can get on the board with the idea of, all right, 
I might draw the line here, you might draw the line there. But the most important thing is the person who should be drawing the line is the woman making the decision. Have decisions ought to be left to the woman who is faced with these sometimes unthinkable medical situations. And uh, I trust women to make the decisions uh, about their bodies and about their lives uh, that are going to uh, affect their future. So this has become Buttigieg's strategy when it comes to discussing abortion. He loves to portray himself as this tolerant type of moderate who wants to reach across the aisle and say, hey, hey, we might all reach different positions and opinions. And I trust that you have come to the conclusion you've come to with deep thought and moral intuition. But if we can't agree on where to draw the line on when it's wrong to dismember a human baby, then the best we can do is to agree on who should draw the line, the woman. So what's he saying? He's saying if we can't agree, agree on where to draw the line, which is what? It's a tacit admission that he won't agree on where to draw the line. That is Buttigieg saying, I will not agree with you on drawing a line anywhere. Because if he could, he would say, for sure, don't abort third trimester babies. So he's saying, I don't agree on drawing a line anywhere. And so because we can't agree on that, shouldn't we agree that the mother should draw the line? Which is an absolutely ridiculous statement to make. If you think that ripping the arms off of a baby in the womb is wrong, and I don't, then here's a suggestion. Let's just let mothers choose to decide when to rip the arms off of their unborn offspring. Okay, Buttigieg, you clearly have no knowledge as to why conservatives and pro-lifers are pro-life. If you think that we're just going to give up our position and our ideology because we disagree, what a ludicrous suggestion to make. And that's literally <clears throat> what he's saying here, that a lack, of, a lack of consensus means a lack of truth. And so just leave it to the woman to decide. Okay, so on Thursday, March 6th, Pete Buttigieg appeared on The View, right, uh, that has only managed to maintain a semblance of sanity because of Meghan McCain's presence on the show, despite the fact that the rest of the hosts attack her regularly for the woman doesn't even like Trump. She's not even going to vote for him just because she's a conservative. So Meghan McCain challenges him on this comment that he made and that we showed briefly from a radio interview several months ago where he said life begins with breath. Many the Bible talks about life beginning with breath. And so we can interpret that differently, seeming to suggest that if he believes life begins with breath, then perhaps the baby isn't alive or has value until they breathe. But babies breathe through the umbilical cord for the entire pregnancy. In fact, they don't be begin breathing through their nostrils until about 15 seconds to 30 seconds after birth, which would mean within 15 seconds of leaving the birth canal, Pete Buttigieg would support taking a stone and crushing in that infant's brain cavity. So she challenges him on those comments that he made several months ago. And here was their interaction. So I was really surprised. I saw an interview you did on a radio show where you were talking about abortion. Mm -hmm. And I think this got a lot of play in conservative media, conservative circles where you were talking about, and this is your quote, there's a lot of parts of the Bible that talk about how life begins with breath. So even that is something we can interpret differently. It obviously in my circles was passed around everywhere because I think the interpretation from pro-life people like me was that you meant a baby actually being born and then possible, you know, there's a lot of controversy with um, Governor Northam and what it means and what, what time a woman should be able to to have an abortion. I just wanted you to clarify because I found that statement to be pretty radical. Well, uh, I'm just pointing to the fact that uh, different people will interpret their own moral lights and for that matter, interpret scripture differently. But we live in a country where it is extremely important that no one person 
have to be subjected to some other person's interpretation of their own religion. I know we're not um, going to agree. Partial birth abortion is something that was coming up in, in, like I said, Governor Northam. It was a huge controversy when he was running for governor. And I think people, even Democrats, and there are a lot of pro-life Democrats in the country, want to know exactly where your line is because you will be the president if you win. Right. But my point is that it shouldn't be up to a government official to draw the line. It should be up to the woman who's confronted with the choice. So there it is again, right? There it is again. If we can't agree on where to draw the line, let's let's parents decide arbitrarily at which point they subjectively define human value and grant it to the child that in 99.5% of cases they created through a consensual act of sexual intercourse. So here he goes again with his absolutely moral bankrupt statements. And it is incredible how much moral delusion and self-delusion Pete Buttigieg can pack into two or three sentences in this comment where he responds to Megan um, McCain. So there's actually like a, a disgusting amount of things I have to unpack here and assumptions I have to debunk in his four sentence response to a question, do you support abortion to the day of birth because you says life begins with breath? Unbelievable. So his assumption here, firstly, is that a lack of consensus means a lack of truth. He's saying, well, people will interpret their own moral lights, their own moral intuitions differently. Okay, so there's a lack of consensus, right? We might all view the issue of abortion from a moral perspective differently. So then he moves from that lack of consensus to saying, therefore, the unborn child has no value to be protected with political laws that prevent their dismemberment, and those decisions should remain purely in the hands of the parents. So there is no truth. Because if you're a pro-life person who says, my child has value, Pete Buttigieg will say, okay, we're not going to force you to have an abortion. You've granted your subjective definition of value to your child, so your child has value. He'd probably stand with the rest of the congressional Democrats applauding funding for saving preemies that their parents want. But Since we disagree on where to draw the line, meaning when the child has a right to life, then there is no objective reality that should hold true through our political realities and our legal system. But this is such a ludicrous thing to say. We used to disagree very widely on slavery. There was a massive lack of consensus in regards to the moral question of slavery. Did that mean that no one was right? No, of course not. It meant that the racist Democrats were wrong. And the the anti-slavery abolitionist Republicans, though, of course, they weren't all abolitionists, but let's be frank, we know that it was the Republican Party that was responsible for making slavery illegal. Obviously, someone was right and someone was wrong. A lack of consensus does not mean a lack of truth. And that's the first assumption that Pete Buttigieg makes, of course, without defending whatsoever, because the one question that pro-aborts are going to avoid like wildfire in their political posturing is the question, what is the unborn? Because we all know that according to the science, it's a human being from the moment of conception. You were you from the moment of conception, and now you're further down on the continuum line of human development. But he's going to avoid those realities and those questions because, as it turns out, reality is the greatest enemy of pro-abortion ideology. His second assumption is that being pro-life is only a religious issue, which is patently an, an insane suggestion because, of course, he always points to scripture. He did that in that radio interview that Megan McCain mentioned, and he did it here, saying because people interpret their own moral lights or scripture differently, we live in a country where it's extremely important, where no one person have to be subjected to another person's interpretation of their religion, suggesting that the only reason people are pro-life is a religious issue, that that if you interpret the Bible to be pro-life, then that's the only reason you would be pro-life. And so you shouldn't be forced to 
force your rosaries on other people's ovaries. You shouldn't be forced to uh, apply your interpretation of a pro-life Bible on the rest of Americans who want to kill their unborn children. So no one should be able to impose their religious view on the rest of the country. But since when is the belief that innocent human beings shouldn't be killed without proper justification, a strictly religious belief? It's no more of a religious belief to say that unborn babies are biological humans and in order to maintain human equality, you have to grant human value to all humans than it would have been to say that being opposed to owning African-Americans and treating them like chattel was merely a religious issue. Because if you believe in human rights, you should be able to get on board with equal treatment of all humans regardless of religious affiliation, right? That makes a lot of sense. But he's just assuming that being pro-life is merely a religious belief and so we have a separation of church and state and you shouldn't be imposing your Christian worldview on other people. It's, it's not strictly a Christian worldview, biblical standard to say that innocent humans shouldn't be dismembered and the unborn is a biological human. And then, of course, he says only the woman should draw the line. So if a woman wants to draw the line at birth, that's her prerogative. So this is Pete Buttigieg answering in a very unclear, euphemistic way to Megan McCain's question, do you defend abortion to the day of birth? Do you draw any lines? And his answer is no, I don't draw any lines because his answer is the woman should draw the line and I support her decision. All right, then you support parents killing their nine-month fully developed viable babies. Wonderful. So Buttigieg continues here by denying the reality of infanticide as some type of you know, Republican scare tactic or talking point because pro-aborts always have to deny that infanticide is happening at abortion clinics because otherwise they might be morally culpable in opposing the abortion industry. So here's Pete Buttigieg completely ignoring what Megan McCain says in regards to infanticide in order to avoid any inconvenient political realities for his run for president. Invoke infanticide after a baby was born, you'd be Does anybody that. seriously think that's what these I, cases I are think about? That think, there think are about the situation. That, yes. If you're, if this so, Megan McCain says, so if a woman wanted to invoke infanticide after the baby was born, would you be okay with that? And he goes, Does anyone really think that's what this is about? That's not a thing. That doesn't happen. And she goes, Yeah, I do think some people actually want to do that. Ralph Northam going on a radio show last year, being asked about a baby being born alive during a botched abortion. And he said that we would deliver the baby, we'd make the baby comfortable, we'd resuscitate the baby if that's what the mother wanted, and then the mother and the physician would have a conversation. Even to make the, the suggestion that a physician and a mother could have a conversation about what to do with the baby after it's born is the height of moral decay. And it should have immediate led, immediately led to the entire country calling for his resignation as the governor of Virginia. And so, yes, there are people that want to make this happen, including the all but three Senate Democrats that I keep saying who greenlighted infanticide and allowed vicious abortionists to prey on, on children that they failed to kill in the womb by failing to vote in protection of laws that would protect their lives. Now, pro-aborts always do this. They always deny that infanticide happens at abortion clinics, which Buttigieg is doing here, completely ignoring these realities, because acknowledging that, that infanticide happens in abortion clinics, would, would even hold their skewed moral compass accountable to call out the abortion industry for these particularly ghoulish crimes. Because who's on board with infanticide? The, the, the killing of a baby after they're born. Well, according to Gallup poll in 2019, only 13% of the American populace 
supports the legalization of third trimester abortions. Well, how much do you think that percentage decreases if you're talking about a baby after it's born? <laughs> so this is not popular with the American public, thankfully, thank God. And yet they can't acknowledge these realities because that would hold them morally culpable to what? Opposing the abortion industry or calling them out for actual infanticide. And then that would threaten their political endorsements from the disgusting enemies of human equality in the abortion industry and those that they feel like they need to pander to in order to get their vote. But we know that infanticide is a thing. The most heinous example of this being Kermit Gosnell. There's a documentary on his life, the most prolific serial killer in American history. Up to 2010 in Philadelphia, Kermit Gosnell operated his very dirty and dangerous abortion facility where he did hundreds of what were called snippings of born alive babies as a part of his abortion process. In fact, there's a grand jury report that, of course, was done in this whole legal examination of his crimes against humanity. And here's what they said. Many of the women gave birth before he even got there. So they were, they were in the surgical room and he hadn't gotten there yet. When you perform late-term abortions by inducing labor, which was how they were doing it, you get babies, live, breathing, squirming babies. Gosnell had a simple solution for the unwanted babies he delivered. He killed them by sticking scissors in the back of the baby's neck and cutting the spinal cord. Um, here is a picture of one of the baby boys and the incision that he jammed a scissor into to cut their spinal cord and kill them after the baby was born alive. This man is a homicidal maniac. All abortionists are, but he just extended that to post-utero. And it is well known that he did hundreds of these and they were never reported. In fact, most circumstances and instances of infanticide where abortionist kills an infant are never reported. Hence the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act by pro-life senators who were acknowledging these moral realities and saying we need better political protections in place for these babies who survive abortions, right? So this was happening. Unfortunately, Gosnell was not an outlier. In fact, Douglas Carpin, an abortionist who is in Texas, has also been responsible for killing babies after they were born. And a former employee of this Texas abortionist, Douglas Carpin, described very clearly how he regularly killed babies born alive by snipping their spinal cords or fatally injuring them with blows to the soft spots on their heads and twisting their necks. This is what this guy was doing. So this is what she said. This is someone who worked with Douglas Carpin, an abortionist in Texas. She said, I'm pretty sure I was seeing at least three or four large babies that were completely delivered in some way or another daily. When the fetus would come completely out, of course, the fetus would still be alive because it was still moving. Of course, you could see the stomach breathing, and that's when he would do this. This being the snipping of the spinal cord, beating the baby's head or twisting their necks and killing them on the spot. And uh, when he was initially, an uh, investigation was initially launched into him, it didn't even lead to his arrest or criminalization. And he ended up being acquitted in 2013, um, though there's been some new investigations into his abortion clinic. So these are hundreds of cases of abortionists who were practicing infanticide in their abortion clinic, and they just weren't reporting it. And CDC has some numbers in the hundreds of babies who were born alive during failed abortions. But None of these abortionists are reporting when they do that. Of course, why would they? Because infanticide is illegal, 
even though our laws have not done a good system to ensure that those babies are protected. So they're not going to report that a baby was born alive during a botched abortion. They'd rather kill it, get the money from the mom for the abortion, and get off scot-free. But Buttigieg just completely denies the reality of infanticide. Why? Because even his skewed moral compass would be forced to deal with the moral realities of his support of the abortion industry at any cost. Makes you wonder, makes you ask, how evil do crimes against humanity have to get to warrant congressional Democrats and Democrats running for presidential office to condemn it, to speak out against it? Well, you would have thought infanticide, but apparently not even that. And so Buttigieg continues here with more of his euphemistic gymnastics describing how why some abortions are the compassionate choice because sometimes women get very heartbreaking news and so it's better to kill their babies. Here's Buttigieg. Uh, think, think about the situation. That, yes. if, you're, if this is a late-term situation, then by definition, it's one where a woman was expecting to carry the pregnancy to term. Then she gets the most perhaps devastating news of her life. We're talking about families that, that may have picked out a name, maybe assembling a crib, and they learn something excruciating and are faced with this terrible choice. And I don't know what to tell them uh, morally about what they should do. I just know that well, I, I trust her and her decision, medically or morally, isn't going to be any better because the government is commanding her to do it in a certain I respect way. that. You didn't back down from it. This is going to hurt you in the middle of the country with the Republicans you're trying to win over. People like me, this is a hard line. And quite frankly, that question, that answer is just pretty, it's just as radical as I thought it was. I'm Look, sorry. Uh, so wait. <laughs> there it is. Well said, Megan McCain. I actually wish she had gone after him a lot harder. Uh, I wish, I, maybe we can get Megan McCain to listen to this show and then uh, we can give her some ammo to use next time she has Buttigieg on. Uh, but correctly, she states, right, you're just as radical as I thought you were you know, good job doubling down and defending your absolutely disgusting position. But this is this is going to ruin your chances with any type of uh, pro-life individual or even moderate pro-life individual or moderate pro-choice individual, because you are you are saying some of the most radical things about human value and in infants and full term babies that we've heard anyone say on national television. So one of the many lies here that Buttigieg very subtly gets across is that late-term abortions are only done when the family learns some horrible news about their baby, right? This is what he says. Then they get the most devastating news, right? They're planning on carrying to term. Then they get the most devastating news. They learn something excruciating, he says, and are faced with this terrible choice. So he's referring to some type of fetal anomaly or fatal diagnosis that they learn about the baby that would lead them to consider abortion in, at all in the first place, because if there wasn't a diagnosis or abnormality, then they would choose life. So he's, he's saying that in this late-term situations, that by definition is what he says. It's one where a woman was expecting to carry determined and then gets devastating news. This is a lie. This is not true. And this is something that pro-abortion Democrats constantly try to push, right? They, they try to discount the moral argument against late-term abortions made by pro-life conservatives by saying, oh, well, the only reason she would do that is not because she's a cold, calculated killer and doesn't care about the life of her child. It's, it's merely because they got bad news. So it's compassionate to rip the arms off of a baby because they might not be genetically perfect or physically perfect 
or they might not survive long after birth, which has its own moral problems that we'll get to in a second. But this assumption, this lie that he's communicating that late-term abortions are only done in cases of fetal anomaly or abnormality or fatal diagnosis is not true. According to a 2013 Guttmacher Institute study, who's Guttmacher? That's Planned Parenthood's statistical research branch founded by Alan Guttmacher, the co-founder of the National Abortion Rights Action League. Their, um, their uh, study in volume 45, issue four of Perspectives on Sexual and Reproductive Health reports that, quote, data suggests that most women seeking later terminations are not doing so for reasons of fetal anomaly or life endangerment. Okay, there you go. There's from the co-founder of the National Abortion Rights Action League and Planned Parenthood, Planned Parenthood Statistical Research Brands, circa 2013, from the baby killers themselves, that these late-term abortions are not done for reasons of fetal anomaly or life endangerment. And then when you discuss these late-term abortions, one of the ways that pro-abortion ideologues try to garner up support for abortions is by suggesting that it's such a minority, such a low percentage. And that's true. But when you kill a million babies a year, small percentages represent large numbers. According to a Guttmacher Institute report in 2016, 1.3% of abortions are done after 21 weeks. But based off of the abortions performed in 2016, 1.3% of the annual abortion rate represented 12,000 babies murdered after the point at which many or most of them could have survived outside the womb. All at the around the same age as baby Ellie, the vast majority of them even older than her. Imagine if, if, if infants or toddlers were being killed at the tune of 12,000 a year and it was protected legally. Would anyone say that that's not a very large number? No, that's an absolutely horrific number of slaughtered babies. But they get away with it by saying it's 1.3%. Yeah, of like 900,000, <laughs> that's not a small number. So that's another reality that Buttigieg is not going to acknowledge, the number of babies that he supports killing. And he defends it under the guise of fetal anomaly and fatal abnormality, despite the fact that Guttmacher Institute says that that's not true. And then in 1997, okay, when I was six, the New York Times reported an article called An Abortion Rights Advocate Says He Lied About Procedure. This abortion rights advocate is named Ron Fitzsimmons, and he's the was the executive director of the National Coalition of Abortion Providers, okay? And Ron Fitzsimmons later admitted to lying about the reasons why women get late-term abortions because he wanted to garner up support for those abortions, and he didn't want to present a threat to pro-abortion ideology. And so in the article, Ron Fitzsimmons, quote, said today that he lied in earlier statements when he said a controversial form of late-term abortion is rare and performed primarily to save the lives or fertility of women bearing severely malformed babies. Right there, right? The suggestion that the majority of late-term abortions are for fetal abnormalities. He now says the procedure is performed far more often than his colleagues have acknowledged and on healthy women bearing healthy fetuses. This was in 1997. He's the executive director of the National Coalition of Abortion Providers. And he's saying, yeah, we totally fibbed and lied about that because, you know, acknowledging that women get late-term abortions um, from a, uh, a purely elective standpoint doesn't do anything good for our movement. So if you get down to the brass tacks, what is Buttigieg saying here? He's saying that he will not tell parents that they should not kill their children 
simply for having abnormalities or fatal diagnoses, meaning he's greenlighting parents killing their own children for having fetal abnormalities or fatal diagnoses. Think about how evil that is. And he says it with this smiling face, like he's this great political leader and defender of families and their reproductive choices. No, you're a moral degenerate defending eugenics. Welcome to eugenics, folks, by the way. The, the intentional weeding out of those deemed unfit to live. Why else would you choose an abortion when you were prior to that, not planning on getting the abortion, but then you learned that your baby had a fatal diagnosis or a fetal abnormality? That's called eugenics. You now are inconvenient. I don't want you to be alive because of the information I got that you're deformed or not genetically perfect. Yeah, fulfilling Margaret Sanger's dream of the intentional weeding out of those that she deemed unfit to live, which in her time included black people and does with Planned Parenthood again today as well. So should we legalize the killing of infants or toddlers after we determine that they have an abnormality? I mean, it's a human in the womb. It's a human outside the womb. If the knowledge that your baby in the womb has a fetal abnormality, and that's such a difficult decision that you now have to make, then should we should we determine and morally struggle to decide whether to kill infants after they're born if they have a fetal abnormality? Of course, it's, it hasn't been that long in the grand scheme of world history where we've been able to diagnose these things in utero. So if it was the 1800s, would Pete Buttigieg say, oh, they carried this pregnancy to term and then they learned the most difficult news after the baby was born, that the baby had an arm missing or had Down syndrome. So we took a stone and we crushed his cavity in because that's compassionate. Yeah, we had the crib ready and we had selected a name, but then we got difficult news. And I, Pete Buttigieg, are not going to tell parents what medical or moral choices they should make. I trust women. Think about how evil that would be to say about an infant. But he says it with a smiling Cheshire cat face in regards to babies before they're born. What moral degeneracy. What about a fatal diagnosis where the baby will only survive for minutes, months, or many shortened years? Parents are told this. Your baby won't survive more than a couple hours after they're born. Or sometimes it's months. Sometimes it's years, depending on the diagnosis. Trisomy 19, for example, might only be months, could be years. Well, can you murder someone if you know they're going to die soon anyways? Would Buttigieg recommend a similar type of moral thought experiment in relation to born people? If we applied this moral justification to the killing of biological humans, and then you found out that your baby had a fatal diagnosis after they were born, they're now an infant, and the doctor told you they're not going to make it through the end of the year, can you decapitate him now? No, nobody is on board with that. But if you get requisite knowledge about the fatal diagnosis of your unborn child, then everyone thinks it's compassionate to chop your head off and dismember you because that's difficult news. What does that really mean? It means you're selfish. You don't want to raise a child with special needs. And you think that human value is based on wantedness and your physical or genetic perfection in the eyes of society. That's eugenics, folks. He says they're faced with this terrible choice. Well, why is it a terrible choice, Mayor Pete? Why is it such a terrible choice to have to contemplate? If the unborn child has no intrinsic dignity, value, or worth, and aborting them is no more morally complex than removing a polyp, then why is it a terrible choice to make? 
This is why a pro-abortion ideology always self-destructs. It chops its own head off. It can't, it can't make sense of human equality because only by admitting that the unborn child has some level of moral worth and there's a massive moral component to the abortion debate can you make sense of the statement that they're faced with a terrible choice. And if that child has value, then that value is intrinsic and it's not determined by their possible abnormalities or their shortened lifespan. If it would be wrong to murder an infant or a toddler who has an abnormality or a shortened life sentence, it's equally wrong to do the same thing to unborn children if you believe in human equality. And I'll tell you one thing, Pete Buttigieg and congressional Democrats do not believe in human equality with the exception of a small handful. And they made that perfectly clear in their divided house by clapping for saving the lives of wanted prematurely delivered babies, but refusing to clap or stand and scowling at the president's call for their moral obligation to ban the barbarism of third trimester abortion of unwanted children. All of this comes down to the casual dismissal of human life and a throwaway culture that treats others as less than us because we haven't determined that they have the sufficient level of moral worth in our eyes unless they're not a burden to us and they advance our lives and our career choices and career well-being. This is not the type of society that we want to live in and we are as divided today on the question of human rights and human equality as Lincoln was in the 1800s when he gave the speech a house divided. Make no mistake, Pete Buttigieg is an isolated example of our divided house. Buttigieg's radicalism and bigotry is just indicative of the entire Democratic presidential candidate field that, with the exception of Tulsi Gabbard, support abortion to the day of birth, and she's not really even on the radar anymore. If the Gallup poll in 2019 is correct, and only 13% of Americans support the current abortion ideology of the entire Democratic field, which is through the moment of birth, then these are candidates that all but 13% of Americans should have nothing to do with if you believe in human equality. So share this episode with a pro-choice friend of yours or someone registered as a Democrat and planning to vote blue this election year because we know our choices, don't we? We've gone through them. The only blue choices for the 2020 White House uh, field are abortion through the day of birth. And Buttigieg is just a microcosm and a representation of the moral degeneracy of the entire field's moral compass. Ask them, ask your friends if they're okay with voting for someone who refuses to condemn nine-month abortions and infanticide and calls it the determining of where individual families draw their line and show them the butchered bloody body of a 22-week baby that we showed you that Democrats support killing because the baby's unwanted. Congressional Democrats and Democratic presidential candidates have shown their cards. They will defend the dismemberment of human beings through point of birth and even block votes on bills to ensure better protections for infants from vicious abortionists who failed to kill them in the womb. As in 1858, this government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free. And the pro-life movement, the defenders of human equality, the modern-day abolitionists will not rest until we grant freedom to the slaves of the Democratic Party unborn children. In giving freedom to the slave, we assure freedom to the free. The only way to maintain a just society that acknowledges and protects human value and a right to life is to grant human value and a right to life to all humans, which would necessitate unborn and born human beings. These are your choices. This is our country. We are a divided house. Choose your sides because silence in the face of evil is itself 
evil. Thanks for joining me today. Head on over to iTunes and YouTube and Spotify. Give this show a review and a rating. Tell us what you think. Help us reach more people. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com to subscribe for my newsletter and get training videos and resources and see my speaking schedule if you want to come hear me speak live and in person. And uh, I don't know, maybe we'll get a cup of coffee together. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. (laughs) 